Good morning, everyone. Well, from the time that Pastor Chris first got sick, which has now been, I think, four and a half years ago, I kind of committed to, uh, if need be, and either he couldn't preach on a Sunday or if one of our guest preachers couldn't preach on a Sunday at the last minute, then I would uh, fill in. And so I've tried to keep a sermon ready, uh, theoretically, theoretically. So yesterday, uh, Lisa and I were out on a boat with uh, some of our kids a couple hours away from here, and I got a text from Josiah that said, hey, we've had a baby, but uh, I'll be there tomorrow. And uh, I think, I'm sure he would have been here today. I have no doubt about it. But uh, there, there was only one possible answer to that text, and that was, no, no, you stay home, you know, because I keep a sermon ready, you know. And so, uh, well, that was good in theory. That was good in theory. But uh, anyhow, so that, that's what I'm doing up here. It's not a holiday. Usually I just fill in on holidays when we can't get anybody else. But uh, today, that's uh, because somebody had a baby. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father... Uh, please touch us with your Holy Spirit as we touch your word, Lord. Let Jesus Christ be uplifted this morning, Lord. Father, if there is anybody in this congregation who is not sealed for eternity by your blood, Father, don't let them walk away today in that same condition. Please pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, is this mic, is it too, it almost feels like it's too hot. Is it, is it okay? Is it okay? All right. I think uh, everybody who is old enough to even think about such things, you've probably contemplated, what would be my dream job? What would be the job where I could combine my natural skills my desires of what I would like to do, my training, my education, what would be my perfect job? And for me, it's pretty easy. I've never worked this job, but my perfect job would be working for Mayfield Dairy (laughs) in their ice cream division. I would want to be a quality control inspector for their ice cream. I can just envision a day in the workplace for me, sitting in my office, my feet up on my desk, somebody rushing in saying, Bill, Bill, we've got an emergency, we need your help. Well, okay, I still have five minutes left of my two-hour lunch break, but what is it? We need you to try out a new brand. We need to get it on the market. All right, all right, I'm a company man, I'll help you. What's the flavor? Well, it's a double chocolate, crunchy, marshmallow, caramel, macadamia nut. (laughs) Okay, okay, I'll help. Bring me a bowl. Actually, bring me two bowls. We want to get this right. That would be my dream job. If I I could land that job, I mean, when I was younger, if I could have landed that job, I would have done everything to hold on to that job. I would have been the best worker. 
I would have come to work on time every day. I would have filled out all my reports. I would have tried to make the bosses look good. I would have done everything I could to hang on to that job. But now we come to a man who potentially also had a dream job. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is back there in those history books. And who's after Ezra. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 1, and the last part of chapter 1, verse, verse 11. The last part of verse 11, as a matter of fact where Nehemiah says, I was a cupbearer to the king. I think when we consider what a cupbearer is, we probably first think about who's probably the most famous cupbearer in the Bible. And that, at least in my opinion, that would be the cupbearer back in Genesis chapter 40. Remember when Joseph was in prison? Unjustly so. And for quite some time, and there was a cupbearer and a baker that also got placed into prison, and they both had dreams, and Joseph had the gift of interpreting dreams through God. And so Joseph interpreted their dreams, and the cupbearer, the cupbearer ended up doing okay. He got released from prison. The uh, the baker not so much. He got hung after that. But that's probably the most famous cupbearer, I think, in the Bible, and, and which is really kind of unfair because Nehemiah has a book named after him, and he was a cupbearer. But I think we just don't pay a lot of attention to uh, the book of Nehemiah, maybe as we should. So, but what is a cupbearer? What, what was a cupbearer's duties? I, th- I, th- I think a lot of us may be guilty of thinking of a cupbearer as kind of a lowly servant type. You know, it's time for the king to drink some wine, call in the cupbearer, have him take a drink of the wine. If the cupbearer falls over dead, you get rid of the bottle of wine, get a new bottle of wine, call in a new cupbearer, and you try over again, right? And so I think, I think most of us think of, that's probably the life of a cupbearer. But that's not the case at all. That is not the case at all. As we find out in the book of Nehemiah, and if you really think about it for a second, if you were a cupbearer, if you had any brains at all, would you let your job begin the minute you're about to drink the king's wine? Or would you start thinking about the process a little bit earlier? Would you start thinking about the entire supply chain? All right. Where is this wine made? Where has it been? Every step of the way, where has this wine been? Because you don't want to end up drinking poison wine, right? And not only that, you would be very sensitive to what the political climate is in the kingdom. Who doesn't like the king right now? Who might be out to assassinate the king? And you would want to keep very close tabs on all the conflict within the kingdom. 
And so, as it turns out, the cupbearer, he's not just some lowly servant who's only involved at the last second, uh, like a, a coal mine canary. You know, the coal mine canary where you bring in the canary. They don't do it anymore, but in the old days, you bring in the canary, and canaries turn out to be a lot more sensitive to uh, carbon monoxide and lack of oxygen. So if your canary is right there next to you in the cage and you're out there working in a mine and the canary falls over dead or starts looking like it's about to die, uh, it's time to leave the mine. Maybe even leave the canary, but but get out of the mine. But a cupbearer is not like that at all. It's not like that at all. And from the king's perspective, if you had a cupbearer, is that the way you would want to treat the cupbearer? Would you want the cupbearer to be kind of like the guy that comes in and maybe sweeps the floors or empties the trash where, you know, you, you don't pay any attention to them. You know, they just, they're just doing a job. Uh, or would you want to know the cupbearer extremely well? Maybe even as well as you would know a family member. You want to know what the facial expressions of the cupbearer would mean. You want to know what the tone of voice might mean. You, you would watch the cupbearer. You'd want to be around them a lot because they are the perfect person positioned to uh, help coordinate an assassination. They work on the inside. So from the king's perspective, you want that person close. And as, we, as, it, as it turns out, in this particular case with King Artaxerxes, he also knew Nehemiah very well. When you get into chapter 2, and you don't have to go there, but when you get into chapter 2, Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, after he first heard about the uh, situation in Jerusalem, he spent about four more months after that uh, without saying anything to the king, without showing any sign of distress over it. But about four, about four months into it, the king, the king looks at Nehemiah one day, and the king, he says, uh, why is your face so sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of heart. So the king knew, knew Nehemiah so well that he was able to look at Nehemiah and distinguish between a sadness of heart or some kind of physical sickness. There's probably people in this room that wish their closest relatives knew them that well, right? Uh, but, but it would be very important for the king to, to know these things, and he did with Nehemiah. So cupbearers, I want you to think of cupbearers as high-level officials in the royal court, because that's what they were. That's what they were. So here we have this displaced Jew, Nehemiah, serving as a high-ranking, high trusted official within the Artaxerxes court, eating at the king's table, eating the king's food, living what I would call a dream job for an exiled person. This is a dream job. One that Nehemiah should hang on to for a lifetime. That's not what we find Nehemiah doing. If you look, go back into chapter 1, let's look at the beginning of chapter 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. 
the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now here's the bad part. This is Nehemiah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When I read those words, when I, when I look at those words, I say, Nehemiah, stop. You've got the dream job, man. I can see him slipping away, slipping away from the dream job. It reminds me, and I think everybody will immediately get this, get this analogy. It reminds me of, of a parent's when their college-age child comes home, when they have just one semester to go before they're done with their degree, and their college-age child says, so uh, what do you think about a person who's in college taking some time off, taking a year off and doing some travel so they can get some real-life experiences? As the words are coming out of your your child's mouth, you start to sink, don't you? You start to sink because you know you've seen so many times, you know so many people have, that have grown up and they have the same story. And the story is, yeah, I almost finished college, but then I took some time off and I never went back. That's the feeling I get when I'm reading this about Nehemiah. I say, Nehemiah, Jerusalem's a thousand miles away. The wall has been broken down for years and years. I say, look at your hands, Nehemiah. Look at them. Do you see any calluses on your hands? You're a cupbearer. You've never done any work like that. And now you're concerned about this wall? Come on, Nehemiah. You've got a good position. Don't blow it. That's not what he did. That's not what he did. And so we, we get the distinct feeling that Nehemiah is not going to be a cupbearer much longer. Now granted, he does, after many years, he does go back and serve some more time as a cupbearer and then go back to Jerusalem. But he's putting his dream job in jeopardy. So how did we get here? How did we get to this point where the wall in Jerusalem is broken down. What happened? So we're going to go back just a little bit in history, just very quickly. We're going to go all the way back to 930 B.C. If you remember 930 B.C., we start. We have a divided kingdom. Israel is in a divided kingdom. Before that time, you had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon, each serving as king for 40 years. Solomon's time as king, it was the most glorious time in Israel's history. And then in 930, after Solomon has died, 
his son Rehoboam takes over, and Rehoboam inherited none of Solomon's wisdom, but all of his ability to tax the people. In fact, Rehoboam says, boy, you think my dad was taxing you? You've not seen nothing yet. And the people wouldn't put up with it. People wouldn't put up with it. Israel ended up splitting. Split in the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom known as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah. And from 930 to 722, the northern kingdom behaved poorly, extremely poorly. They were idol worshipers. God was very patient with them. But around 722, God had had enough and he sent the Assyrians in to destroy them. And boy, destroy them they did. You remember the Assyrians? They were so awful that when they were coming to town, entire towns would commit suicide because the Assyrians were so horrible. If you, uh, if you go over to the British Museum in London, you can, they have a lot of Assyrian artifacts there. And this, there's, there's large walls that would go from one into this church to the other with uh, carvings of the Assyrians' battle campaigns. And it would, uh, you see scenes of the, uh, the king, the king sitting on his throne, and you see mountains of, uh, of skulls, you know, skulls of, of the enemy. And they, they, were, they were proud of that. They were proud of that. They, they just did horrific things to the enemies. So anyways, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians. And then you move, keep moving on further until you get down to around 600 B.C. And uh, at that point, the southern kingdom they had behaved badly as well, and not quite as badly, but God also finally got tired of them. He had had enough. He lost patience with them. And so God brought in the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom. But the southern kingdom, in that case, remember, they, they, uh, they just took the population, or a large part of the population, and they moved them into Babylon. So that's around 600. Let's move forward a little bit more. We move forward to about... 539 B.C. And in 539 B.C., the Babylonians are conquered by the Medo-Persians, specifically with King Cyrus in charge. King Cyrus, he was an interesting king. He's mentioned in the Bible by name in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44 and chapter 45. He's mentioned by name. Remember, the book of Isaiah was written... 150 years before that, actually closer to 200 years before King Cyrus. He's mentioned by name as the king who would send the exiles back. Mentioned by name. And that's what he does. In 538, King Cyrus makes a decree that all the displaced people can go back to their homelands and worship their own gods. And once again, if you go to the British Museum, you can see there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of clay. It's shaped kind of like a cucumber. It's about the same size as a large cucumber. A piece of clay that has what's called, it's called the Cyrus Decree on it. And on that is writing clear around the whole, uh, this, this whole cylinder with that decree about the people can go back to their homelands. So, so that, God, God caused Cyrus to make this decree. And so the, uh, a remnant group of, uh, of Jews went back to Jerusalem 
under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and they, uh, they rebuilt the temple. They finished around 516. So from 538 to 516, they, uh, they built the temple. But they didn't build the wall. They didn't build the wall. We jump, jump ahead in time. Jump ahead all the way to uh, 445 B.C. So we're jumping from 516 B.C. to 445 B.C. That's where Nehemiah comes in. During that time, during that space right there, that's where the book of Esther happens, by the way, too. 485 to 465 in that time frame. Uh, if you're wondering where Esther fits into all that. But in 445, Nehemiah gets this idea to go build the wall. You say, what's the big deal about a wall anyways? Why would you care about this wall? It's been down for, you know, since 600 B.C. This wall's been destroyed. Why would we care? Let me ask you this. If you went home tonight and when you went to bed you left your front door open, your sliding glass doors open, your garage door open, how would you feel? How would you feel tonight as you sleep with all the doors wide open? Now, you can still close your bedroom door. I say close the bedroom door. How much protection does that offer you? Bedroom doors, they're usually hollow, usually locks that are easily picked. Not like the front door. The front door is solid. It's your first line of defense to keep, keep people out, right? Well, that's basically what was happening in Jerusalem with the wall destroyed. The wall was to keep enemies out. The wall, don't think of like a chain link fence that's kind of laying over. These walls are tall. They're thick. They literally keep invading armies out. This wall all the way around the city was completely destroyed. Wild animals could walk in. Anybody, you could just walk in and out without protection. In fact, as you get further into the book of Nehemiah, you find that uh, on the Sabbath, outsiders were coming and selling. Vendors were selling on the Sabbath because there's no wall. Nehemiah takes care of that by closing all the gates on the Sabbath so that 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 wouldn't happen. It's so bad that one of the pagan officials in the area, a different governor, he even has a room in the temple that's his, in the temple. Gentiles are not supposed to be in the temple. So this wall was important. It was a shameful and humiliating sign for the Jews. So it seems like a very abrupt change in course for Nehemiah who has a dream job to want to go work on this construction project. What happened? What happened to Nehemiah? Actually, as it turns out, it wasn't an abrupt change at all when you, when you consider Nehemiah's background Nehemiah would have known all of the inner workings 
of this, of this government. He would have observed how to do things well, how not to do things well. He would have observed how to know uh, uh, where, where, the, where the enemy is attacking, internal threats, external threats. All of those types of things happened uh, to Nehemiah once he went to Jerusalem to work on that wall. So God had been preparing him for, you know, for years for this very project. So you combine God's raising this man with this need in Jerusalem, and what you have is you have a man who is leaving God's, leaving a dream job to serve in God's plans. Going to serve God's plans. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that once Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall, that life got easy for him. In fact, life got very difficult for him. The enemy attacked from every direction. People who were in uh, officials in Jerusalem at the time were opposed to him. There was a famine at the time. He had, he had enemies. You list the enemies around, around uh, Jerusalem at this time. He had enemies on all sides who wanted to kill him. You had, uh, you had, had people working on the wall, relatives of people working on the wall who were saying, this is too much. We can't do this. We can't get this done. So he had, he had enemies on all sides. So I don't want you to think that once Nehemiah got aligned with God's plans for his life, that life got easy. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, that's never the case. Never the case. It's, it's strange how often that we think and we're taught in churches that, boy, once we, once we find out what God's plan for our life is, life will be easier. You know, I'll be doing it right once I find out God's plan. But when you look at the people in the Bible, I mean, just take, for instance, Moses. Once you got past this burning bush scene where God finally convinced Moses that, you know, yeah, you are going to do this, and, God, and Moses sets out on God's plans for him, well, now you've got this whole Pharaoh thing to deal with. And right off the bat, the people are going to Moses and saying, look, you're making our lives worse. Why don't you stop all this? And then you have to cross the Red Sea. And then you have people constantly, constantly complaining that why don't we just go back to Egypt where we had it so good? I mean, they were slaves, but they say, where well, we had it so good. And then you have water issues. You don't have, there's no water out in the desert. You have food issues. You have the, you have the spies who come back with a bad report, the people rebelling. In fact, if you look at Moses' life right up until the very end, the very end, the people were complaining. They were complaining. That's what got Moses into so much trouble there toward the end. So Moses, even though he was exactly in God's plans, was his life easy? No, they were harder. Look at Joseph. Boy, there's a guy who had an easy life. (laughs) Gets accused by Potiphar's wife of doing some bad things that he didn't do. He gets thrown in jail, and it wasn't just a couple of days in jail. He was there for at least a couple of years plus in jail. And I imagine Egyptian jails were probably not a pleasant place to to, to spend time. 
You keep going forward. I mean, you head right into the New Testament. You look at Paul. Now, Paul, there's a guy who actually probably did have a dream job before he went on that road to Damascus. He was a high-level Pharisee. Now, on the road to Damascus, God gets his attention, and from that point forward, Paul is certainly in God's will for his life. He is walking in God's plans. There's no doubt about it. You look at Paul's wife, Paul's life. What a mess. He describes the things that he's had to endure. Multiple shipwrecks, being, at, being out at sea in a shipwreck over, overnight uh, out in the ocean. He'd been stoned. He's, uh, he's constantly being chased by officials. He'd been flogged uh, multiple times. Uh, he had threats from, threats from insiders, threats from outsiders. And then you get all the way to 2 Timothy, probably his, the, the, his last letter, 2 Timothy. And how, how is it all ending for Paul? He's chained. He's in prison by himself, no less. Pretty much, he says, everybody's deserted me. So here you have this guy, Paul, walking in God's plans throughout his, throughout his entire life. It was just one battle after another once he left his dream job. We could bring up Jesus too. Was Jesus walking in God's plans for his life? I would say so. I would say so. Jesus sure had a smooth time of it, didn't he? Every time he, every time he went out in public, the uh, the Pharisees and the scribes they were trying to trying to uh, uh, trip him up, trying to isolate him so they could kill him. Even the people, even the people themselves, wanted to kill Jesus. He was absolutely, perfectly in God's will. Absolutely. When I look at this congregation in this church today, look back, you go back four and a half years since since Pastor Chris was first diagnosed, and I would I would say I would say we have all probably aged more than the four and a half years that has actually passed. I know I have. If we would have spent this time let's say in some mega church in Knoxville, if, if starting four and a half years ago, if you would have been in some large church in Knoxville where you have a paid staff take care of everything, you come in, you drop off your kids, somebody whisks them away to some, some happy place. You sit in church for an hour, then you go home, That's the dream church job, isn't it? That's the dream church. I, I just heard about a church uh, in the last week or so. We're coming up here soon. They're going to have movie, movie-themed sermons where they're going to take several popular movies like The Matrix and a few others. I can't remember them all. And they're going to serve popcorn during the service. And uh, maybe they were even going to give away free T-shirts. So imagine that. You come to church. You come to church and you get served popcorn and, 
and uh, maybe, you know, probably some Starbucks coffee, and you watch some movie clips out of uh, real fun movies, and then there's a little, you know, a couple minutes of sermon time. You pick up the kids, you go home, you've done church. That's the dream church job right there, right? That's dream church. And it's even going to get better. It's even going to get better in the future as more and more people are staying at home and watching church from home, and you have Facebook merging with churches. Right now, there's a big, there's a big push on that. You can literally be at home on a Sunday morning, still never even getting out of your pajamas, your cup of coffee, and all you have to do is click like. Oh, I liked that. You know, I've done my church thing. I like that. Maybe make a little donation, click donate, you know, whatever. I mean, and now you've done your church thing. That's the, it, it's even getting better and better, isn't it? How far have we strayed away from the idea that a church is supposed to be comprised of a body of people where everybody comes together bringing your gifts, the gifts that God has given you to serve the body. How far have we gotten away from that? Tell me, if you are watching church from home on Facebook, clicking thumbs up every so often when you hear something really cool, how far have we strayed from being members of a church body? But when I look at this church because of the way things have transpired, pretty much everybody in this church is doing, serving their, their gift or uh, their role in this church as God has designed it, as he describes it in the Bible. You play a part. You're the hands, you're the feet, whatever it might be. We left our dream job, our church dream job, so to speak, quite unwillingly, quite unwillingly. As Pastor Chris was getting sicker and sicker and we were all picking up new tasks, new tasks, and then pretty soon as Chris went, went to heaven and now for six months, we were it. We were it. We were the church body. And so we spent six months like that. And then we had 2020 with the pandemic and the other fortunate, unfortunate events that I'm not even going to go into now. But I am convinced that if the years would have been swapped, if we would have had, if we would have had the t- events of 2020 first without the preparation of Pastor Chris slowly becoming more and more ill and us slowly picking up more and more roles, I think we would have probably been in a lot of trouble if we would have found ourselves instantaneously having to be a church body. I think we would have been in a lot of trouble. I think God was preparing us. God was preparing us. Painfully. Painfully. Painfully, but slowly. But we were... We were in God's plans at that time. If you want to avoid the pain, if you want to avoid the pain of being in God's plans, being in God's will, the best place to be is on the bench. Go to the bench. How many times, how many people do you know? Maybe you've done this for a period yourself in your lives, but how many people do you know 
who have had a painful church experience and they go to the bench and they never get off of it. They never get up again. The bench is a great place to not be injured, but it's also a great place to not accomplish anything. So what am I saying? Don't make the mistake of thinking that, that, that a comfortable church experience, that a dream job, that just staying as the cupbearer in a very comfortable position, don't make the mistake of thinking that since things are going well for you, that you are in God's plans. I assure you, you are not. You are not. If you do not have obstacles, if you do not have troubles in your life, and I'm not saying just because you're kind of a, a dope, I'm saying, you know, in your church experience, if you are not having troubles, you can assure yourself you are not in God's plans for your life. You are not. And if you're eating popcorn in church, you are probably not in God's plans for your life. Probably another safe rule of thumb. I hate to say it, but I think it's true. Uh, so are we worn out? Are we tired? Do we wish that a... Uh, somebody would step into this church and kind of save the day and we could, all, we could all take it easy for a while. Forget about it. Just forget about it. Yes, we need a pastor. We absolutely need a pastor. But forget about looking for the easy road. It's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. But we should also look at what does Nehemiah say? Nehemiah, when he's in the thick of problems, and if you haven't read Nehemiah, you should go back and look at it, if you haven't looked at it recently. Unbelievable, unbelievable troubles that man had while he was working on that wall. But what does he say? He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our strength is not comfort that is not that does not represent a god that is happy with you that you are comfortable the joy of the lord is our strength being in god's plans working to further his kingdom fighting the enemy fighting the enemy you i think we need to remind ourselves frequently when things are getting hard we need to remind ourselves we say, oh, you mean the devil is tricky? You mean the devil does hate me? You mean the devil does want to destroy you? He wants to destroy this church? Yes, he does. Unless, unless you're sitting on the bench. The devil could care less about you sitting on the bench. You ever watch a basketball game where the opposing team is constantly trying to defend against the bench? I don't think so. They're out there trying to defend against the players who are going to score the most points. Don't look for comfort. Don't sit on the bench. 
If you're on the bench, get off the bench. Get back in the game. Get back in the game. The joy of the Lord will be your strength, not the joy of an easy life that is not your strength. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom and discernment to know that when we are fighting battles, that they are your battles, Lord. We don't want hardship based on our selfish desires or our, uh, just being a troublesome person. We don't want those kind of troubles, Lord. We want the kind of troubles that come from being part of your plan, part of the heavenly battle. God, may you use us in this church to push forward your kingdom with trouble and adventure, but eternal security. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.